Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Sanjay Nath. He is a professional speaker whose topics include leadership and performance. But would you believe that he actually started off as, as, as an engineer? He got a degree in mathematical engineering. And when I first saw that, I thought it was a typo because I never heard of mathematical engineering before. I thought he meant mechanical, but no, I, I, then I looked it up. It actually exists. So, so I'm really going to definitely interested in asking more about that. And then also he's the author of two books, the 10-80-10 principle, unlocking dynamic performance and the ABCs of student leadership. So I'm really looking forward to asking him more about his journey into becoming a professional speaker, the motivation to write his books and how his engineering background prepared him for what he does now. Welcome to Teach the Geek interview, Sanjay. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. Do I call you Master Geek? Do I call you the Almighty Geek? Uh, what would you prefer? Neil works. Okay, Neil works too. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned in the intro that you got this degree in mathematical engineering. What was the motivation to get that degree? I lost a bet. <laughs> uh, you know, but the way it worked for me was uh, in high school, I was very strong in math and sciences, but I always had a more of an inkling for business, I thought. I, I, that seemed cooler to me. And so when I talked to guidance counselors and parents and friends of the family, everyone said to me, hey, listen, uh, you're really good at math and sciences. Engineering is a really solid degree. If you want to do business, you can do business afterwards, go get an MBA or something. Uh, but it's much harder to start with business and go into engineering or sciencey stuff than it would be to start with the science and go and go into the, uh, to the business side of things. So foolishly, I listened to them and I went and got, got me a degree in mathematical engineering. Wow. You know, that was actually solid advice. I actually had a guest on not too long ago. Actually, that interview came out not too long ago. And we were talking about the versatility of an engineering degree. I don't think a lot of people really see it that way. You know, you, you typically see these engineers as these kind of geeky people. but And that very well could be the case. But there's been engineers that go on to do all kinds of things. I mean, I worked in medical devices. I knew engineers that became salesmen or salespeople, went into marketing, went to quality, went to regulatory, some go to law school, some go to medical school. Like you can do whatever you want really with an engineering degree. hundred percent agree. Um, they, that's the thing. I've always said this, that engineering, not even just engineering, but formal education in general. And, and I think formal education is great, but I think real education is more important than formal education. Because I'm sure you know, there are some really formally educated people that are morons and some people that don't have any formal education are just brilliant. Uh, but to me, a degree says more than, oh, I'm an engineer, I can do engineering. A degree says I'm I'm teachable. Actually, it doesn't even say I'm teachable. It says I'm learnable. It says I can learn the skills that I want or I need to be successful in this particular area. Now, engineering is for a particular brain type. There is a lot of structure and organization and, and methodology, which is, I think, fantastic. Uh, but it's not for everyone. I don't think everyone should get a degree. I don't think everyone should even go to college. Uh, but I think for the right person and the, the skill set it gives you is, is paramount. It's, it's so important. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Sanjay. I don't think everybody should go to college either, especially if you're not sure what you want to do, because 
That's a pretty expensive bill. If you if you don't have the money, you took out a whole bunch of loans, especially here in the U.S., where the school here is very expensive. You might end up leaving school. You have a whole bunch of loans. And then not only that, but so often people end up working in jobs that didn't require the, the degree they ended up getting. <laughs> but you still got paid Fannie Mae back them loans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's way cheaper to go travel the world. <laughs> no question. But you know, I also saw that you got an MBA. So what was the motivation to get that degree? Again, I think it was a typo. I thought it said NBA. I thought I was going to play basketball, but uh, <laughs> three years later, I never saw a court. Um, so what happened with for the engineering, and I'll, I'll give you a bit of my bridge into speaking. Uh, people go, I've, it's a question I'm asked a lot. You have a degree in engineering? You're a professional speaker? You know, it doesn't jive. And my, my smart ass response is, well, everyone knows that engineers are well-spoken, social, emotional creatures, and it logically follows they should all become professional speakers. And so, so my, my story goes like this is, when I was uh, when I was in high school, I was, I was super involved. I was that kid. I was uh, student council president. I was valedictorian. I ran the school store. I played sports. I was in theater, like all that stuff. And when I graduated, and I was studying university, and I was studying engineering. One of the two years removed from high school, the current uh, high school president, the student council president, called me and she said, "Listen, um, you were so involved in school. We want you to come back and give people a pep talk about about getting involved in school." And she said, we'll pay you to speak. And I said, you'll pay me to speak? Normally people would pay me to shut up. This is good. And so what happened was I was doing backflips in my house. I was excited about the opportunity. And the one girl I was living with said, what are you so excited about? I'm like, they want me to speak. And she goes, well, I coach a swim team. Why don't you come and talk to the swim team? And I was like, okay. So the next thing I realized, I'm waking up Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m. as a 19-year-old. And I'm speaking to 8 to 10-year-old swimmers about goal setting and dealing with your parents and communication. And older kids started sitting in on the sessions and then adults started sitting in on the sessions. And an adult came up to me and said, Hey, that was fantastic. Will you come in here and speak to this group? And when that spoke in that group and a teacher said, Hey, how much do you charge? And things just kind of snowballed from there. So a couple of years into it, I went one point I was, I was schooling full time and, and speaking part-time. I would like literally fly out on the weekend, stay up late all week to do my homework, go somewhere on the weekend, come back, you know, rinse and repeat. And then once I actually established my business fears after college, the idea of the, the MBA, um, I was an entrepreneur. So getting some business skills was helpful. But again, cutting back to our earlier discussion, the education you get from an MBA is that much. Um, you could get just as much education by going to the library or going online. You, the factual information you get is not a lot, and it's a, and it's a heck of a lot of common sense. However, my big driver was I had always kind of had in the back of my head that I wanted to do the speaking thing for big kids because I was only speaking for, for students. And as a 19 year old, it's hard to get credibility to go and speak to a C-suite. And so it was a bit of a wanting to learn the skills, but wanted to have the credibility. And then the third piece, which I didn't realize how powerful it was at the time, was the connections you make. And so those people um, liking, you know, you do business with people you like. So those people like me brought me in to do presentations, which snowballed into other things. And, you know, again, 20, what is it, 27 years later. A uh, million people, 2,000 audiences, uh, the phone still keeps ringing. Wow. So you've been doing, you've been speaking ever since you left school. So does that, that means you've never worked for anybody? I've never had a real job, my friend. Wow. I'm really? chronically unemployable. Yeah. <laughs> and not even since I started, I've left school. I've, in my second year of, of my degree, I started. So I was doing it before. So. Okay. Wow. You're the, I think you're the first guest I've ever had that. That's never had a job. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. And, and one day, one day I'm moving out of my parents' basement too. 
Yeah, they probably got that marked off on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Okay, that's great. So, you know, I, you know, I mentioned the in the intro that you speak mainly, mainly on leadership and performance. How did you come to those topics? So when I, I, I kind of gave you my story of how I got into it, but I'd actually been exposed to speakers for the first time as a 10th grade student. And as a 10th grader, I went to a, a conference, a leadership conference for developing leadership skills and, and bringing high school students together. And I went in totally thinking this is going to be a huge nerd fest. But I went and I just had like an amazing and amazing experience. I, I met some beautiful people, like physically, mentally, emotionally, just people I connected with. And one of the things that was really impactful for me on, at that event was I saw and felt the impact speakers had on me. So I'm thinking like I was going to a speaker. I had no idea that I could laugh and think and like just change my perspective in such a short amount of time. And so I remember sitting as a 15 year old in that audience going, you know what, one day I'm coming back here and I'm going to speak for this group. I never thought I could do professional. I didn't even know you could be a professional speaker. I just thought I would one day come back and volunteer. And in sitting there as a 15 year old, I, I heard in my head them reading my intro and it said like, oh, he, he's done cool things. But the last line in the intro in this fictitious intro was saying, you know, X number of years ago, Sanjay sat where you were, you know, he's a product of the program kind of thing. And so what's kind of cool is May. So just we're in June right now. So last month I spoke there and that was my 32nd, my 33rd year in a row involved with that event. So the first couple of years I went back as a counselor. And then since 1995, I've spoken there every year, the last couple of years virtually. Um, and hopefully we're going to be back in person. So that's uh, that exposure to leadership, because to me, leadership is this idea of you have hard skills and hard skills don't always cut it. In fact, the way I've said it for years is the smartest kid doesn't always get the highest marks. The most qualified person doesn't necessarily get the job. The most talented team doesn't necessarily win the championship. So if those aren't the reasons, what's the edge? And the edge to me is that soft skills. It's, it's the communication. It's the trust. It's the experience. It's the being in the moment. It's using intuition. And when I put all that stuff together, that's what I call leadership. And to me, that excites me. And, and that's what's, what's always been a driver for me. So stem there. And then I just, it, it, it served me. Like I, I know that I've had opportunities and distinctions that maybe I wasn't quote unquote, the most qualified, but I was able to get an edge. And to me, that's all about leadership. You know, it's, it's so funny you mentioning all of this, Sanjay. I actually wrote an article maybe a couple of days ago about the importance of being able to communicate your value to others because just because you're the most qualified technically, just like you said, doesn't mean you're the one that's going to get the promotion or the pay raise or the opportunities. It's the person who's connected, the person at the networks, it's the person who knows people, is able to communicate for themselves. That's the person that typically moves up and, and, and finds themselves in, in better positions. And I said in the article, you don't want to be that engineer sitting in their cubicle stewing because you weren't willing to do any of those things and just thought that being a technically proficient engineer was enough to, to make you move up and, and get you these opportunities because it's not. <laughs> you got it. And, and to me, that's what it is. It's that idea of the communication. It's the idea of the team and trust. That's all that encompasses uh, under the banner of leadership as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So out of curiosity, the, you know, you know I did mention that you have this degree in mathematical engineering how if if at all did it prepare you to become the speaker that you that you are so in in canada we have this uh we have this thing it's called the engineering ring and it's a little ring that you wear in your pinky i don't have mine on it's, it's in the other room and so you can actually distinguish 
engineers physically from the hand and engineers know to see it. And if you quick little side stories to why, uh, because I know you talk about public speaking and I'm a big believer of one of the best ways to help people train and become better speakers is to incorporate stories because stories have an emotional connection. People tend to remember them. I'm going to tell the story and I think a lot of people are going to go, oh, that's cool. So this is why we have these, these pinky rings. There was a bridge that collapsed due to an engineering failure hundred years ago. It was made out of iron. And, and these are called the iron ring, by the way. And so what they did was they rebuilt the bridge and, and it was an engineering failure because they were trying to cut corners. So they rebuilt the bridge and a few years later it collapsed again, again, for the same reason. So they kind of tore down this bridge and they took the iron from the bridge and they started making rings to give to engineers. Everyone who graduated as an engineer got to wear this pinky ring. You're supposed to wear it on the pinky of your working hand. And the rationale for it is when you as an engineer go to sign off on a document, your pinky will hit the surface that you're writing on and it'll make a little tap from the ring so that every time you sign off on something, it's supposed to remind you to make ethical decisions. So, you, you know, and that, I mean, that's true about everything you do. That's about integrity, right? So that's sort of like an honor that said, or like a promise that says, if I'm going to take this on, I'm going to do everything I can with absolute integrity. We talked earlier too about, there's a certain logic that comes from the idea of, of engineering, um, it, it structure processes. But the other thing too is when I'm in front of technical audiences, I will put the ring on. And it doesn't have to be engineers necessarily. It could be accountants. It could be number crunchers. It could be uh, uh, IT folk. Uh, and you'd be surprised how often that little subtle thing, people going, oh, where'd you, where'd you do your degree? Oh, how, you know, what, what flavor of engineer are you? And so it allows me to connect with certain audiences. Absolutely. It gives me a structure and a formality and a way of thinking that and a problem solving approach that I don't think I would necessarily get without. Um, so there is a lot of value that comes from it. But from a technical standpoint, did I do a lot of public speaking courses in my undergrad? No, not so much. But there's a tremendous amount of value in other aspects. Okay, yeah, that that, that makes sense. It, it's kind of like what you said. It, it lends itself, lends credibility to to you. And, and if you're, especially if you're speaking by the technical people, they see the ring and the, okay, maybe this is this is somebody from my, I guess, my tribe. So yeah, this yeah. is somebody maybe that I'll, I'll actually listen to, as opposed to maybe someone who is a, a communications coach, has a degree in communications, knows nothing about being an engineer but they're gonna tell me how I could best communicate as an engineer. That's kind of why I even started teaching the geek in the first place. Yeah, um, I was actually doing an event years ago. They asked me to MC it. It's a big gala awards event. And the reason they picked me to MC it was because I was an engineer. And so what it was, it was an engineering association. And they said, we brought in an MC last year and he didn't know the, he didn't know the terms. He was pronouncing all the, all the engineering terms incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> so you know at least one out of two thousand programs was uh, as a result directly of the degree <laughs> nice <laughs> and i'm sure all these engineers in the in the audience are just like where did you get this clown from <laughs> the guy from last year not you of course <laughs> of course yes <laughs> yeah no question you know i i mentioned also in the intro that you have a couple of books and what was the motivation for writing them and what do you hope people take away from them so the idea behind the book was I'm a student of the game and the whole professional speaking world is a game. And ultimately what I want to do is I want to, and I believe this is the core of every business is you want to create value and get paid handsomely for doing so. The more value you create, the more you should get paid. If you're not creating value, you should get paid little or nothing. And so as I understood that concept, one of the things I 
learned from one of my earlier mentors is he said, you know what? There are different reasons for writing a book. Some people write a book for credibility. Some people write a book for um, marketing. Some people write a book because they have this burning message that they have to say. Some people write it for therapy. There's all kinds of reasons for writing a book. And you should be clear as to why you're writing a book. So I recognize initially I was writing a book because I wanted, it was, it was a bit of a, bit of a credibility piece, but more of a marketing piece. That's what it was for me. So I started writing my book on my core, uh, my, my core flagship program, something called the 1080-10 principle. And I started, and I wrote about half of it. And then I decided that I didn't want this to be my first book. And so I wanted to learn the process of how do you write a book? How do you do the book layout? Where do you get an ISBN number? How do you register that? You know, all that kind of stuff. So almost as an experiment, I decided to write the second book, which, or which was my first book called the ABCs of student leadership. So I started off within students speaking and then those students grew up. So it was about 15 years ago, maybe 17 years ago, this kid came up to me and he said, Hey, listen, I have your business card from eight years ago during orientation week in college. He now, I now work for this major bank. What do you offer for banks? So up to that point in my career, I'd only done youth stuff. And so now the, the corporate world started to open up. And so then I had to kind of tweak my content, get a little different stuff. And now I, I speak both. I, I joke and I say I'm bilingual. I speak adult and student and they're two completely different languages. So going back, you know, why was I writing the book? I started writing the, the, the corporate book, but I was like, I have a lot of credibility and I have a lot of experience in the youth. I'm going to put together a youth book. And I used to write for a, a national uh, art, a, a national uh, magazine. So I did this. I pulled a bunch of my articles and I kind of cleaned it up. And I, I'm saying this loosely, but I slapped it together really to learn the process. And I printed a hundred copies of the book and I put in even like some images and I put clip art. And technically you're not allowed to print clip art, uh, not in that capacity, but I was only printing a hundred copies. And I figure these books are going to end up on my parents' bookshelf. What do I care? So I printed up a hundred and they sold out like immediately. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I printed up another hundred and then they sold out immediately. So I printed up a third hundred and they sold out before I finished printing them. And I went, maybe I can actually sell this book. And so then I actually took out the clip art, hired an artist, cleaned it up, made it a little prettier. And then I printed up 5,000 copies of it. And the reason I picked up 5,000 is because technically that would make me a national bestseller. Sold those 5,000, printed another 10,000, sold those, um, and then printed another 5,000 and, you know, and on and on it goes. And so in the meantime, people were going, this is great, but what about for the big kids? What about for the adults? And so then I went back to the, uh, the 1080, book. Um, I've since re during the pandemic, I've, uh, rewritten the 108010. So once I get rid of the, the current copies I have of the current 108010 book, I've uh, rejected it. Now I've uh, done it as a parable. So I I'm actually, I'm much happier with the second version of the 108010 book than I am the first. So I shouldn't say that because people won't buy it. I mean, <laughs> buy the first one. Buy the first one. The first one. You got, yeah, you got to burn those ones first. But yeah, it's good. It's good too. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I, I, I really like the idea of it being a parable because, you know, people like, as you mentioned, people like stories. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite books actually is a, is a parable too. And it was a, it was a great read. And those books that, you know, they could be 200 plus pages. And it's not a story. It's, it's a, it's a lot of dry data and facts and text. Oh my God. It's a, it's a, it's a slog to get through. What, what's the book? What's the book that you said? One of your favorites. Oh, uh, what's, what's, oh, geez, what's it called? Oh, Greg, sorry. Greg, uh, no, no, no. Hey, Greg Ward is the name of the, of the author. 
God, I forget the name of it. Okay, but it'll come back to you. Greg, Greg with two G's at the end, though. That's why okay. I remember that. <laughs> I remember his name, but I don't remember the name of his book. Ain't that a shame? But I, re I read it, and I, I really enjoyed it. You know, when you were talking, Sanjay, it made me think about the differences between technical audiences and non-technical audiences, you know, with you being the presenter. Do you see any differences? And, and if so, what are they? Ah, so you deal with speakers, and... I say this and it tends to offend all speakers, but I don't care because I believe it. I believe every speaker in the world, every trainer, every workshop presenter has the same core fundamental message. We're all the freaking same. We are all professional re-reminders. We tell people stuff they already know, but what makes one more effective than the next is their ability to speak to the language of the audience in which they're communicating. So for the right audience, every speaker is a hero and for the wrong audience, every speaker is an idiot. So, Going to your specific question, you know, is there a difference? Yeah, there is a difference. But sometimes the difference is very, very subtle. And sometimes the difference isn't even in me delivering, but them receiving. And so I'll give you an example of that. And not specifically with technical, but this one jumps into my head. The transition, I, I was joking earlier saying that, you know, I, I speak adult and youth. And sometimes something you say in front of an adult audience is hilarious and the youth will look at you funny. On, and vice versa, if you say something in front of the youth, they think it's hilarious, the adults think you're weird. And so the difference of how to make it work in both can be very, very subtle. And it often comes with experience. So there's a line I've used for years when I'm speaking to students and I go, hey, how many people in the audience here have really immature friends? And they all giggle and they point and they go, and they think that's hilarious, right? If I say that to an adult audience, they'll kind of be like, who is this guy? But if I change just one word and I say to the, to the adult group, how many people here have really immature spouses? then all of a sudden the adults start acting like the children. They're pointing and laughing and stuff. So the same message, but tweaked slightly differently to get the same impact. And I find that's true with, with a lot of things. Uh, and technical audiences versus not. Yeah, like as an example, being stereotypical, because it's not always true, but typically um, I measure an audience on two factors. One I call courtesy, the other is responsiveness. So courtesy is how quiet are they when they're supposed to be quiet? Are there side conversations? Are they mumbling or whatever? Are they like, do you get pin drop silence? The responsiveness is how loud are they when they're supposed to be loud? So when you, when you say something funny, are they laughing and slapping their knee and those just lose chortling or are they, you know, dead, dead pen or are they maybe laughing, you know, quietly where their, their, their body's laughing, but no sounds coming out. <laughs> right. So I find that a sales audience is extremely responsive. Typically, not again, not every group, and there's always exceptions, but in general, sales audiences are very, very responsive. They laugh, they're outgoing, they're social people. Technical audiences, I find, are very uh, not responsive. So what does that mean? It means that that's just their comfort level. Because I've been to audiences where people, the entire hour-long program, all I get is one guy in the front row smirks. <laughs> and then the... Meeting planners come up to me afterwards going, wow, I've never seen them laugh so hard in my life. <laughs> and I'm like, but, and, but that's just my judgment because I don't know who they are. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, I heard this years ago and it took, my, it took me a long time to get my head around it. Professional speakers say a, a standing ovation says a lot more about the audience than it does about the speaker. And I'm like, no, a good speaker gets standing ovation. No, not necessarily true. Because if you're a professional speaker, Okay. To me, this is what a professional speaker means is the band between a good day and a bad day is really, really tight. People can't tell it. 
right? If you're a brand new speaker, you hit a home run, you strike out, you hit a home run, you strike out. You're all over the place. But as you get refined, the day, the difference between a really good day and a really bad day, you know, your, your, you know, your bestie knows, but barely anyone else knows. So if I'm a professional speaker and I go to one audience and one audience does not give me a standing ovation and I deliver almost the exact same presentation to another audience and they give me a standing ovation, I haven't changed the audience has. So that's, that's uh, going back to, is there a difference? There's differences in every audiences. However, I don't think there's a universal approach and I don't think we go, Hey, if, if they, did this. I've seen the opposite too. I've seen people get standing ovation and been in the bathroom afterwards and people roll their eyes going, well, that was crap. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, 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 there are differences and it's a matter of how do you create the value and it, it, it's your best guess, which comes from experience. Right, right. You know, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned that the technical people not being all that responsive. And I'm thinking perhaps the reason for that is because it, whenever they hear someone speak, they're not expecting them to be good. So, so whenever, maybe if they are, it's just like, wait, am, am I actually, can I actually laugh right now? I, was, I wasn't even expecting to laugh at this presentation. So I'm not even sure if it's appropriate for me to laugh right now. So. It, it, that social conditioning is huge because I, again, when I see the, uh, I just did a program recently. I'm back to doing live in-person programs again, which is fantastic after this almost two year hiatus. And I almost expected this and I've seen it a lot. I see a lot of the, the silent laughter, this one. Because I was doing an event recently and they said that their team almost doubled during the, during the pandemic. And this was their first meeting in person. And like a half the team didn't, hadn't known, didn't know anyone. So you put them in that dynamic. They don't know what's acceptable or not. So as a default, we kind of, I think it's funny, but I'm not going to let myself react. Right. This is this isn't supposed to be a comedy club. I'm supposed to be professional. Is that professional? So exactly to your point. Right. So they don't know what the, what the expectation is. And if they don't know what the expectation is, it's easier to be neutral. I don't want to show my, show my cards, but if you have that culture where it's not only accepted, but it's encouraged, we want to know emotionally who you are. We want to hear what you're all about. How do we, how do we connect? Then yeah, those, those groups are often much more. Uh, that's why the, the sales group, they're, they're more touchy feely. They're more emotionally expressive. And again, typically technical audiences are, but with that said, I've been in front of audiences, that are technical, that are off the charts and, and outgoingness, right? And they're extroverts, uh, but that's not the the general case. Yeah, my experience. Yeah, I could I could totally see that. And even in that in that example you give with the half the people not even knowing their other half because the they're they're the new employees and they never met each other face to face, they may very well be looking around and seeing other people laughing. Maybe okay, if other people are laughing, then maybe I'm, I'm maybe I'm allowed to laugh. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, no question. So, if because you've been a, a professional speaker for so long, what would you say would be your number one tip for anybody watching or listening to this episode to become more effective in public speaking? Well, I just kind of again earlier I said this idea of stories. Stories to me are so huge. Um, here's here's my belief. I believe that if you did an inventory on your life. And you looked at all the times where you had your uh, emotional peaks and valleys, really good things, really bad things, you know, uh, birth of a child, death of a loved one, whatever it is, you'll find that that's when you get the most significant learning. Those are your biggest ahas in life. Like things kind of make sense. Light bulbs go off and you're like, of course, I, I, I guess. And so I believe that 
true understanding and acceptance and, and, and um, stickiness comes from an emotional connection. And although we can't replicate those major life milestones in a 60 minute keynote, what we can do is try to get people to an emotional level. And if they're at an emotional level, it's easier for a message to stick. And I don't care what the emotion is. The emotion has to be consistent with who you are. Uh, so every emotion works. It can be shock, awe, anger, humor, I don't care. In fact, one of the best compliments I ever got as a speaker wasn't meant to be a compliment. <laughs> my my ex-mother-in-law came to see me speak and she left the program and kind of rolled her eyes and said, oh, he's the same on stage as he is off stage. And I was like, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what you want. I am a sarcastic smart ass. That is authentically who I am. And I try to, I try to replicate that on stage because it, it, it's who I am. Now, you want to make it a little bigger. You want to polish it, make it clean. Yeah, that's fine. But if you are, if you are an emotional tree hugger, don't try to be sarcastic. It's not who you are. And people will smell it out. So it's that idea of getting people in an emotional state. And I think the quickest, most effective way of doing that is through stories. Stories that are consistent with your personality. Again, if you're sarcastic, use a sarcastic story. If you're emotional, use an emotional story. If you're, you know, shock and awe, use a shock and awe story. So I think that would be it. Uh, my mentor said this to me. Um, one, of my, one of my very first mentors when I was getting into speaking, he said, you can learn all the rules. You can have all the gadgets and all the technology. He said, ultimately, it comes down to two things. And I wholeheartedly believe in this. He said, number one, have a story to tell. And number two, have a burning desire to tell it. Because when you're at that point where I'm like, Neil, you need to listen to this. It's going to change your life, right? When I'm so excited about telling you, even if you don't want to hear it, I'm going to cram it down your throat <laughs> and you're going to enjoy it, whether you like it or not. <laughs> but you know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we've all been in presentations where the person's up there and it's like pulling teeth. You know, they don't want to be there. And, and they even say it. They're like, oh, I, well, I didn't have time to present, to, to prepare for this. It's going to be really bad. I'm like, you don't have to tell me. I'll figure that out. Right. <laughs> right? But then, then there are people that whatever it is, they're, they're excited. You can tell me bad news and be excited about it because there's an opportunity for it to get better. And when you get to that state, when you really believe that this is going to help, um, audience will be so forgiving. You don't need the rules. You don't need to not say, um, you don't need to not turn your back from the audience. They will give you such a long leash of comfort. And here's the other thing people sometimes forget in the history of the world in the history of the universe, as far as I've seen, no one has ever entered a presentation going, I hope this sucks. I hope it's a complete waste of my time. I hope it's embarrassing for the speaker. I hope there's no value. People by default go, I'm in this presentation. I hope I get a tremendous amount of value. I hope I love it. I hope it's funny. I hope I learned something. I hope I make a friend. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. They are by default, they're on your side. They want you to succeed and they want to get value. Let's give them a reason to do that. No question. Yeah, I, I fully agree with what you said, Sanjay. And I looked up the name of the book so that people that are listening or watching don't think I has made it up. So the, the, the name of the book is The Respectful Leader. And the, and the, and the author, his name is Greg Ward. So with two Gs. With two Gs, absolutely. Well, this has been great speaking with you, Sanjay. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? I can go to my website. It's just my name, sanjaynath.com. So www.sunjaynath.com. And my email, my website, and all there. Or if you have, like, you want to drop off a styrofoam cup and you keep a styrofoam cup and do a long string we can talk to each other that way too <laughs> no no doubt well everybody that makes the that marks the end of another edition of teach the geek interviews 
My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Sanjay. Thanks. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time